So Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Saviour. Such is a generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. Good morning and thank you for being here. It's encouraging to see some people turn up during the summer. So thank you and a warm welcome to those who are visiting this morning. So it's great to have you with us as we open up God's word on this Sunday morning. I wonder, as an introduction to this psalm, is... How well do we know this God that we've sung about this morning, that over the last few months, Pastor Nigel has been opening up the scriptures to us on the attributes of God. So in theory now, our head knowledge should be pretty good for those who have looked at these studies. But what about our heart knowledge? As it dropped those inches from our mind to our hearts, are these truths unchanged and changing, having an effect on us this morning? And that's where I'd like to go this morning, that we're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2, which will be the main part of the study, the, the preaching. And then we'll touch on verses 3 to 6, and then to verses 7 through to 10. So there's three sections that I'd like us to look at this morning. But it depends declares something of great importance to us, I believe, as Christians, that whatever happens in our lives, whatever we're going through, we are safe and we are secure. I wonder if any of these hymns ring a bell. All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small. Lord, from whom all life and true gladness springs. Anybody know that one? Lord, who by thy word of power didst in nature's earliest hour fashion sun and star. I looked at one of my old hymn books and I thought to myself, some of these I've never even heard of. O Lord of heaven and earth and sea, to thee all praise and glory be. Now this is one I do remember from school, summer suns are glowing. Do you remember that one? For the beauty of the earth. What about this very popular one that we sing here quite regularly? 
O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands has made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. And this is where the psalmist starts this portion of scripture. And I wonder about 3,000 years ago when the psalmist was writing this, what did he see? What was it that he heard? What was it that he felt? The time may be different, and out there in the Middle East, something of creation would have been different. But in general, out there, the sun would have risen and set, the moon would have risen and disappeared in its course of time. The stars would have shined probably more clearer than what we see them today. But I wonder what made him proclaim that the earth is the Lord's. What is it in this opening words that grabs his attention so much that in the end he can say that this God of creation is the King of glory? What is it that he saw? What made him the David Attenborough of his day in that sense? Where there was no TV, no radio, email, internet, Skype, Facebook, Instagram, iPhones. Have I missed anything out there? And yet, 3,000 years later, we read this psalm. Why? I believe he saw the wonder and the beauty of creation that was about him. He saw the wonder and beauty of the God of creation. He would have experienced on one of those Israeli mountains the weight and glory of God that as he looked over the scene before him, whether it was over the Jordan Valley, whether it was over the Mediterranean Sea, whether it was looking up to Mount Hermon or down towards the Dead Sea, he would have seen something of the beauty and glory of God in his majesty in all that he saw. And because of that, the Holy Spirit inspired this man to write this psalm. So what is our view of the God of creation and creation itself? Do we have a sense of awe and glory, what we look at, and what, what is about us? Or do we just, as British people are prone to do, moan about the weather? We moan about everything, don't we? How many of you moaned on Thursday, this is too hot? How many of you moaned on Friday or Saturday, it's too wet? It's too humid? What about autumn? Autumn colours are absolutely fantastic. But it's too cold. We've got too much rain. And what about the spring? Oh, got up this morning, had to scrape the car. But yet, you know, if we took those frost and looked at them in the microscope and the snowflakes, what would we see? Something of an individual creator God. Do we have a sense of worship regarding creation, the God of creation? Or do we just take things for granted? Do we view what we possess as ours, our right, our privilege? I deserve this. Or do we acknowledge the earth is the Lord's? So here at the very beginning of this chapter, the psalmist is declaring that the earth is the Lord's, that somebody owns it. And I praise God this morning that it is not Trump or Putin or Boris Johnson 
or Kim in North Korea. It's not London or Washington or Tehran or Brussels. It's not the USA or Europe that own the earth. But God and God alone. God and God alone, the eternal glory, the glory of creation. And again, Psalm 19 says to us, the heavens declare the glory of God, not man. And in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. And even then in the New Testament, what has man said about creation? He says this in Hebrews 1, 2, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. And verse 6. And again, when the world, God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all angels worship him. Verse 9. Sorry, um, verse 10. In the beginning, the Lord, you lay the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. My friends... Aren't you glad that this earth belongs to the Lord? The world is, un- is changing, but our God is unchanging. And throughout the Psalms themselves, from Psalm 115, read it through to 135. If you're looking for something to read, some are reading, get hold of those Psalms. Because in each of one of them, it declares the, the Lord to be the maker of heaven and earth. And our word, of the word of God that we have in our hands this morning, right at the very beginning, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This God who is the eternal one, the self-existent one, the self-sufficient one, he is the one that created. He's the one that formed us. He's the one that made everything about us, everything that we see. And this God, he has remained the same with regards to his creation. He has not changed, for he is the unchanging one. He still rules the earth from the day he created it to today. And every event that happens in your life, in my life, in the life of this church, in the life of this nation, God is enthroned in the heavens. He sits enthroned and nothing can move him. He is unchangeable. What God is, he has remained the same. He has not changed. I am that I am. Where do you stand this morning with the view of God as creator? Earlier in the Psalms, in Psalm 14, we read the words in verse uh, verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So where does all this come from? How did it happen? (coughs) By chance? Accident? Where do you stand? Regarding Jesus and creation, we heard last week from one of our elders, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Nothing was made that was made without Him. Colossians 1.16 Again tells us, for in Him... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
where the thrones or powers of rulers are authority. All things have been created through him and for him. You look at Jesus in the gospel, you see his power over creation, calming the storms, calming the wind. You see his miraculous power healing people because he created us. He formed us in his image. He was able to do the things he was doing because he was God incarnate, God amongst us, Emmanuel, God with us. And then with regard to the spirit in creation, there he is in chapter uh, 1 of Genesis again, verse 2, the spirit was hovering over the waters. Psalm 104, verse 30, again, that's another psalm of great creation input to see the wonder of God. Read Psalm 104. When you send your spirit, talking about the animals, they are created. You take away their breath and they die. Job 33, verse 4, what does he proclaim there? The spirit of the Lord hath created me. So in creation, in here in this psalm, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. It's the work of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God creating for his glory, for his honour, for his purposes. And then if we want to look further, again, biblical statements that we've already looked at with some scientific statements that I came across. Now, I'm not a scientist, so... I've just copied out what was in a book, but it's interesting. We see in Genesis chapter 1, three divisions and then provision. In, so days 1 uh, to 3, we have division. In days 4 to 6, we have provision. The days of division are day 1, light and darkness. Day 2, waters above and the earth uh, below. Day 3, land and sea. So we see God dividing these elements ready for his creation, ready for purposing for mankind to live on the earth. And then we see the land being formed. Imagine the different colours, the variety, the colours, the habitats, the uses of all that is on the land today. When we went to New Zealand back in March, April time, the wonder of creation just flying across Europe and then coming down into the um, United Arab Emirates. And you look out the window and you see all these valleys, all these mountains. And then obviously then six hours into our journey, which is four o'clock in the afternoon, you hit nighttime. That was bizarre. And then you didn't see anything then until we landed in Australia. But, you know, we landed in uh, Singapore, I should say, in the early hours of the morning. The heat there, the different climate, then flying on to Australia to just change planes. And you, you see something more of God's wonder and f emptiness of the vastness of Australia. Four hours to fly across it. And then landing in New Zealand and then traveling around New Zealand. The wonder, the beauty of creation but all provided for God, God or made by God, providing for us. But everything that God created had a purpose. 
the grass of the fields to feed the, the cattle, <coughs> crops for man to eat. And Colossians 1.17 says, In him all things hold together. Can you imagine what would happen if God was to withdraw his sustaining power? Gravity, for example, we would not be able to stay on the earth. We would die, but God's got the right balance of gravity. The sun, apparently, has a temperature of 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. If it were closer to the earth, we would burn. If further away, we would freeze. The earth, did you know, was tilted at an angle of 23.4 degrees exactly. That gives us the four seasons that we have. And if it wasn't tilted, the vapors from the ocean would move north and south, eventually piling up in monstrous ice continents. What would happen if our atmosphere was thinned out? Well, the meteors would that now burn up. Uh, when they hit our atmosphere, would con continuously bombard us. As some believe they did millions of years ago, billions of years ago, and wiped out. And then a fluidic atmosphere that moves with the rotating earth changes and the weather. We're watching a program, I believe it's called Orbit. Can I recommend that to you? Orbit. Three scientists are talking about the earth and the way it moves and rotates and the way the atmosphere changes. What happens if things move up north? What happens if things move down south? Where does the hot weather come from? How does it all work? Each continent almost has their swirling wind patterns and how they can interfere with one another. Again, in the headlines this uh, recently, wasn't it? The moon landings, a distance of 250,000 miles away from Earth. Exactly. Just for enough for a man to get to the moon. You know, what effect does that have over the oceans? And even the sea itself. Even if the, they say if the ocean was mere few feet deeper, the carbon dioxide and the oxygen balance in the Earth's atmosphere would be unbalanced and no life would exist on the planet. The Earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Things don't happen by accident. God's ultimate rule over all things at all times. What God creates, he also maintains and preserves. It is the very activity of God himself. It is more than the law of nature. It is his infinite power to uphold and manage them. And then there's us, humanity itself. Man's only claim to importance is that he's made in the image of God. What is man in the light of the greatness of creation? What is man that you are mindful of him? And yet we read in Psalm 139 that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Just look around the room. Look at the person you're sitting next to. In very many ways, we're very similar. And yet we're different. God's creativity We created for worship as we've been doing this morning. Make known that his name is exalted in all the earth. 
Psalm 100 tells us, Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. How do we enter his courts? In saying that also, we are eternal beings that God has placed his spirit within us. He has placed eternity in the heart of man. But because of the fall we read of in Genesis 3, we now have a different element to our being. We are appointed to die and after death to face judgment. And yet we are redeemed people. What God has revealed and said about himself as a creator, again, I would recommend reading Job 38 to 41. How God in all his glory, power and wisdom has created such things that we see and know about. And again, various scriptures from Isaiah 40 through to 46 that declare, I am God, I am creator, there is none like me. One of my favourite authors and preachers of the past is uh, A.W. Tozer. And he said, there is the blessedness of possessing nothing. And he says, before the Lord God made man upon the earth, he first prepared for him a world of useful and pleasant things for his sustenance and delight. In the Genesis account of creation, these are simply things. They are made for man's use, but they're always meant... Sorry, but they were meant always to be external to man and subservient to him. In the deep heart of man was a shrine where none but God was worthy to come. Within him was God without a thousand gifts which God had showered upon him. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Adam just to stand in that garden with everything that God had provided for him and God himself? And then in Genesis 3, we hear of the fall. That man rejected God and all his things, all that he was to him. And he has taken things and replaced it with God. And that's man's situation today. This is your situation, my situation. That we delight in things more than what we delight in God. Tosa continues, but sin has introduced complications and has made those very gifts of God a potential ruin to the soul. Augustine, one of the church fathers, said, Thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find it in thee. Are we restless for God? Are we happy with our current spiritual circumstances, situation? Or is there more? Are we restless for God? Are we resting in the internal or the temporal? The infinite or the finite? The unchanging or the changing? The everlasting or the decaying? We read today, don't we? We're living in a society, a generation that wants to save the world, but not his soul. We want to save the animals, but not feed the hungry. 
We want to build on the moon and Mars, and yet we can't live on peace on Earth. We've got things around the wrong way. And I'm saying that's bad because we should be caring for the creation. But I think our priorities are wrong. You know, creation has priority depending on the cause you are fighting. Life is taken away from conception to old age. If it doesn't work anymore, if it becomes inconvenient, why not? Let's get rid of the image of God, which is eternal, and preserve that which is going extinct, which is temporal. We will either worship someone or something, even if it is self. In doing so, we dethrone God of his rightful place, and we place ourselves on the throne. And so we read, the earth is mine and everything in it. This is my world. Nobody dare touch it. Nobody dare come near to it. And in Romans 1, in the great passage there from verse 20 onwards, we see it happening, that Paul sees it in the first century, that man has worshipped the created rather than the creator. God created all things simply because he willed to do so. Everything that God, he placed into creation, he was under no constraint whatsoever. But he deserves all the glory and honor. With what, with what lowly reverence should we bow before him as we read in Psalm 100, kneel before our maker. To who or to what are we kneeling today? How's your little world holding up in view of creation? Then the psalmist says to us, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? I promise you this is going to be a bit shorter. How can we worship this creator? We're in a spiritual moral dilemma here. And again, Anselm asks God a question. Why do you spare the wicked if you are just, supremely just? How can God be just and still justify a sinner? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Verse 3 there. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? That's the challenge. That's, that's the invite. And the answer comes back. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. Are your hands clean this morning? Is our heart pure this morning? Is, can I say that about myself? See, to come into God's presence, you have to be of a certain standard. And we've all failed that standard. The Bible is politically correct when it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Adam eventually was not good enough. He failed. Abraham was not good enough. Moses was not good enough. King David, the prophet Isaiah, and the rest of the prophets, priests and kings, were not good enough, and neither are we. And yet, we're here. Why? Why have we come this morning? What has brought us here today? Look at us. Look at the standard that we've fallen from. 
For the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the... Fall short of what? What people think of us if they found out the truth? It's not how much money you earn. Not where you live. Or what kind of property you live in. It's got nothing to do with your past, your present, or your future. Everything in this world that matters is passing away. The scriptures tell us there is none righteous, no, not one. What we have fallen short of is this. It's the glory of God. It's the one that says, I want you to ascend my holy mountain. I want you to stand in my holy place. But we can't. Our hands are dirty. They're full of sin. Our hearts are impure. Everything about God tells us that we are sentenced to death. Spiritual death. Because we can't reach the standard that God has set out for us. But yet I praise God that his compassion flows from his goodness and his justice. If God is good, he has to be just. And God always acts as he is. He is unchanging in himself. And God looks upon us, he looks at our moral situations, and he either sees death or life. So how does this affect us this morning? How can we approach this holy God? Let me take you back in history to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus. And in chapter 25 through to the chapter 40, we have (coughs) instructions here on the tabernacle that God was going to create. So let's remember that God dwells in the heavens where even the heavens are not enough to contain him. He chooses and delivers a people out of Egypt for himself. They are God's chosen people. They are the church of the Old Testament. They are Abraham's seed. He brings them to a place called Mount Sinai. And the glory of God descends upon this Mount Sinai and abides there roughly about nine months or a year. And God speaks to Moses and says, I want you as a people to build me a dwelling place among you. Now, there are about roughly about three million people at this point that God has brought out of Egypt. He's provided everything for them. And he says, I want this tabernacle, this dwelling place amongst you people. And what we see here is that once this structure is completed with three compartments, you have the outer court, the inner court, or the holy place, and you have the most holy place. In the outer court of the tabernacle, that's where you have the altar and the brazen uh, bowl to wash. So the altar was for the sacrifice. And the priest would take the sacrifice off the person who had sinned, and he would slay it on the altar. And then the priest then would go wash himself. That was done for every sacrifice that was brought in. So if you think of a three million people, when you walk in through the tabernacle, there wouldn't have been a pretty sight. There would have been blood everywhere. Then the priest then would pass into the next tent, which was the holy place. This was all covered in. This was no natural light was allowed in there. 
but there was a golden candlestick which spoke of Jesus as the light of the world. And there was a table of showbread to display Jesus as the bread of life. And there was an altar of incense, which was unceasing prayer, a symbol of unceasing prayer. That's how far the priest could go. Then there was a veil with embroidery of cherubims and seraphims on it. The high priest alone could enter into that place, the Holy of Holies, but he had to offer a sin sacrifice for himself and for the sins of the people. Only then could he approach God once a year on the Day of Atonement and offer this blood as a sacrifice. And there, as we know in the Old Testament, it was the glory of God dwelling amongst his people. Or if you like the old-fashioned word, the Shekinah glory. But this was a temporal place. Soon this would be replaced by the temple. Soon we know that the temple would be destroyed as we go through the Old Testament history. But when we come into the New Testament, we see a new tabernacle, a new sacrifice system. And we see it through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And our moral dilemma has been solved by the cross of Christ. So when we as sinners come and put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the situation now becomes reversed. We take Christ's place as Christ took our place. When, God, when the Lord Jesus Christ shouted from the cross, it is finished, that veil that separated us from the holy place was torn into. And access to God was made through the Holy of Holies. That we come to worship God in a new and a living way. And this greatness of God should arouse fear within us, but his goodness encourages us not to be afraid of him. The word says, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. But this morning, the blessing belongs to those who are his, his all-cleansing blood, his glorious righteousness, his indwelling spirit, his grace has given us a pure heart, yet not perfected until we see him face to face. But God reveals himself to us through Christ, and Christ reveals himself to us through the, by the Father. And there is nothing else we can do because Christ has done it all. His atoning death has paid the price for us. God is satisfied. Sinners like you and me are now brought back into fellowship with the Creator. And we can stand in the holy place knowing his blessing. And in verses uh, 6 there says, This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. In Psalm 27, we, we read these, these words. One thing I ask of the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Verse 8 says, My heart says if you seek his face, your face, O Lord, will I seek. The holy God and the sinner being reconciled. 
And I was thinking that everything in this world is beautiful, even though it's in a fallen condition and in a decaying condition. And I think Louis Armstrong was right when he said, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. But we also must remain, remember that it is fading, it is decaying, creation is longing for, revi- uh, for renewal. And that day will come when Christ returns. Is it him you were seeking? Is there an empty space in your life that you're longing for? To be filled? You're longing for satisfaction, acceptance, love? Well, this God has revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And it's only in him will we find true satisfaction. So the psalmist has said here that the earth belongs to the Lord, that we belong to him. That because we belong to him, we can have that relationship with him in a deeper way. So what is our response today? Finally, in verses 7 to 10, we have these words. Lift up your heads, you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. It's as if a herald has run ahead to the city of Jerusalem and is proclaiming, the king is coming back. Open the gates, open them wide, because the king is coming. And he's bringing an entourage with him of those he has taken in captivity, of the wealth of the lands. So you've got to open the gates because he's not going to get everything through. Open them wide. The people ask, are you still doubting regarding King Jesus this morning? I came across another hymn which depicts the life of Christ. And it's a a Christmas one, I think, but yet it's a gospel one that we can sing any time of the year. Who is here in yonder stall at his feet? The shepherds fall. Who is he in deep distress, fasting, fasting in the wilderness? Who is he to whom they bring all the sick and sorrowing? Lo, at midnight, who is he that prays in dark Gethsemane? And the chorus says, "'Tis the Lord, a wondrous story. "'Tis the Lord, the King of glory. "'At his feet we humbly fall. "'Crown him, crown him, Lord of all.'" The King of glory, the Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. The herald announces, who is the King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Is that our desire this morning, that the King of glory would not be only known within our hearts, in our head, but known and felt amongst us? as we gather together as a body of God's people, that this King of glory would dwell amongst us, that we would know his presence. There's a story of uh, Handel and his servant that back in 1741, Handel was given a piece of paper with some writing on it, and he was told, see what you can do with this. After 24 days, he had produced 
the classic Messiah. All based on scriptures from the Bible. And it's quoted here by saying, sometimes the servant stood in silent wonder as the master's tears fell on a page and mingled with ink while he penned those notes. And at once the servant found the master sobbing with emotion. He had just finished the Hallelujah Chorus, King of Kings and Lord of Lords forever and ever. Hallelujah. Can you imagine the emotion that Handel felt just handling the word of God, putting it into song, putting his notes on the paper. Can you feel the emotion that this psalmist has when he writes these, these words about the greatness of God, having fellowship with God and dwelling with God? Lift up your head and the King of glory shall come in. The King triumphant is ascending to take his throne. He has conquered all his enemies. In Colossians, we read these, for in him all things were created. In the gospel message itself, the whole life of Christ, from his birth to his resurrection, is all about the kingship of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. We started in September last year by looking at Matthew's gospel and the kingship of Jesus at his birth, his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. We'll see him before Pilate asking the question, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responding, my kingdom is not of this world. And then on his cross, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, We see him in Revelation, King of kings and Lord of lords, exalted. Here he is, the Son of God, the Messiah, the glorious coming King. We see Christ victorious, crowned with glory and honour. He is Christ Almighty. Thy great name we praise. This is the God of Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If that's true, if we believe that, we need not fear anything because we are Christ's and Christ is God's. Amen.